So a few weeks ago when I last talked here, <coughs> I was starting a series of talks on what are known as the wings of awakening. But one of the things about old age is that you forget. So I realized about halfway through the sitting tonight, oh, I'm supposed to pick up that theme. But that wasn't what I was planning on talking about tonight. But then I realized what I'm talking about is awakening itself. So I guess we're still on the same page and I can pick up the list when I'm next here. So a couple of weeks ago, I was lucky enough to be on the big island of Hawaii and um, was visiting with a friend over on the dry side of the island, over in Kona. And she took us one evening to a place where there are a number of tide pools. And we were there at sunset. And at sunset, into these tide pools, the sea turtles come, the honu. And you can stand there and watch them arrive. One, two, eight, 10, 12 of these sea turtles kind of making their way in to these pools where they spend the night. And at one point, about four of them stacked up on top of each other, sort of looking like improvised bunk beds. And then they decided, no, that wasn't really the best way to spend the night, so they moved away. And I was very touched by this, just watching these great, you know, they're huge, these big beings coming in. And the theory is, I guess, that they come in because they'll be safe, the sharks won't bother them, and they'll be okay for the night. And the image just stuck for days, you know, these sea turtles coming into this safe place. And I thought of it actually again tonight, watching you all come in. You're all the sea turtles. <laughs> and you've come to the tide pool, you know, one after another coming in to a place that many of you have come to recognize as a safe place. It's not necessarily this physical space. It's also the place of being on the cushion, of coming back again to meditation. And in the beginning of our practice, sometimes that's all we know. We know that there's something about this. You come, you sit, straight, sort of, and you try to give your attention to the breath and to the body and to the heart and to the mind. And you try not to get caught in your story, right? Simple instructions. Most of you have heard those instructions many, many times. You bring the attention back every time it wanders off into the story. That's enough instruction to keep you going for six months worth of practice right there. And so over and over again you do this. It seems so very simple. And what we begin to find, for most of us, since most of you have done this more than once, is that it seems to help. There's something about it that's safe. And so in the same way that, I, I, you know, I don't think sea turtles have any great intellect. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. But there's something in them that knows. 
coming back is safe. And, and a lot, we do that. There's something that just kind of knows. We come back to this practice over and over again. You come to one more sitting, you do one more meditation at home, you do another retreat, whatever it is that you're doing, just coming back in this very simple way. And that's all we know. We just know that somehow it helps. And I hear this a lot as I talk to people, that something shifts. I come in feeling awful. I go out. I'm not necessarily feeling fixed, but somehow I feel better, a little more centered, a little more stable, a little more not so caught in the story. So it, it, it works that way. It certainly worked that way for me in my early years of practice, going back over and over again to retreats and to practice. And I think some of my, my friend Sylvia Borstein likes to say, you know, of, of the third noble truth, which is that there is an ending to the suffering that we get caught in, and that the third noble truth is there can be a complete ending of it. And she says, well, there's a third and a half noble truth, which is there can be less suffering. And most of us know that place of the third and a half noble truth of less suffering. We can say, yeah, that's true. I And I look around, I know a number of you have been sitting for years and years, and I think every person that I see here that I know well would say that. And if you disagree with me, you can talk to me later. (laughs) So I think that that's what this is. You know, we gather Thursday nights, Sunday morning, Sunday evening, whichever time you happen to gather in this community. Uh, any of the other days of the weeks when we have practice and and we're coming back into this place our Soto Zen friends say that just to sit is to be enlightened it's a very interesting statement it's like wait a minute how can that be true you know I just sat am I enlightened But I think some of what that's pointing toward is that place where you know, you begin to know that if you step into this, I almost think of it as as a geography, as a geographical space, when we're outside of the story, that then you're a little freer. You're not so caught. And that's a moment of beginning to wake up when we begin to see that that's true. And so you're, we're stepping into that place where we're not quite so caught by our conditioning. And nibbana, or nirvana, is that which is completely not conditioned outside of all conditions, whatever that might be like. And again, we don't necessarily, I don't think any of us know what it's like to be completely outside of conditions, but to to be outside of that place where we're being reactive is, a, it's a very big and important thing, I think. So this is a realm. I think I do think of it as a geography, and it's 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 a realm that's known to all spiritual practices. It's the shamanic realm. It's the world of the 
kind of strange truth that dreams sometimes bring is a realm that's addressed by all of the great spiritual traditions. So, one of my favorite stories, I thought of a number of stories when I was thinking about this, and one that I know a number of you have heard me talk about before, is um, the story of the Emperor Wu, which is one of the great teaching koans in the Zen world. But not all of you have heard it, so I get to tell it again. So the Emperor Wu was a great Chinese emperor around the 13th, 12th, 13th century. And um, he was a spiritual seeker, and he yearned to find somebody who could really teach him. But, you know, when you're the emperor, it's sometimes difficult to find people who will really tell things to you like it is, you know, because you're the emperor, and they want to make you feel good so that you'll be nice to them. So, you know, he could get instructions like change your diet or say these prayers or whatever, but it didn't have any real meat to it. And he knew, he'd had some experiences where he knew that things were, there was a way that he could see things, a way of deepening his own mind and heart. He just couldn't find it. So one day, into his court, this great, big, red-haired, blue-eyed man showed up. Very different from the Chinese people who were there. And there was, this was a man of some considerable presence. And the emperor was just, you know, sort of electrified. You know how it is sometimes when you see somebody that just catches you. And so the emperor asked him some questions. And he first said, well, what about all of these practices of, you know, building temples and doing things for the poor and all that, that I, to gain merit? And this man looked at him and he said, no merit. Well, you know, you don't say things like that to the emperor after he's built all these temp- temples. So he immediately went, oh, and so then he said, well, what about these holy teachings? You know, and he held up a book of suttas. And this, the man said, nothing special, vast emptiness. So that was really an interesting thing. So then he said, who are you standing there? And the man said, I don't know. And the emperor was so undone at that point, you know, just reeling, that when he looked up, the man had gone. The man, as it turned out, was Bodhidharma, the great Zen teacher and sage. The emperor will never saw Bodhidharma again, but his life utterly changed from that experience. And he, um, he went on to do things like he would sell himself to a monastery to be a monk and sweep floors and scrub toilets and all of that. And then after a while, the court would get 
tired of not having an emperor, and they'd go and they'd buy him back, which was actually quite useful for the monasteries because then they would have money, and then after a while it would happen all over again. But it's wonderful because what he was doing, you see what he was doing, right? He was stepping out of his story over, the story of the emperor, you know? And, and he would step out of that story for a while to sweep floors and scrub toilets, and then after a while he'd get sucked back in. We're all like that, aren't we? And it's a wonderful koan. I completely recommend it to you. Just once in a while, say to yourself, who are you sitting there? And then try on, I don't know. Because that's the place. That's that realm that we step into once in a while where we don't know, we don't know anything about what's going on. What is going on here? You know, we have a whole story about it, but we don't really know. It's just concepts in the mind. It's handy in time and space. It's very useful, but we really don't know. And that's the place of waking up. That's the place of safety that we can come back to over and over and over again. It doesn't happen all at once for most people. There are a few people who have enormous awakening experiences, knocks not only their socks, but just about their whole personality and everything else off, that puts them into some different space. I don't know anybody like that. I just know that it has happened. For most people, the process of awakening is very, very slow, and it happens like a little tiny bit at a time. Maybe you have just a glimpse of what it might be to not be pushed around by your story. You have a moment of, if not complete freedom, like Sylvia says, at least some freedom. And then you're back in it again. And then you have another moment. And then you're back out of it again. And so it's like that. And hopefully, if you practice enough and study enough and all of that, the moments begin to come closer and closer together. So it's accessible. I think that's really important for us to hold on to. But sometimes people say, oh, I don't want to talk about enlightenment or awakening. It's just one of those things It's not useful. I don't want to think about it because I can't get there. But I actually think you can get there. And we're all getting there. And this process of coming back is part of what we do to get there. So there's a couple of things along the way that are really, really helpful. So another story. It's an old Sufi story. I think there just aren't a whole lot of really good Theravadan stories. You know, there's (laughs) Sufi stories and Zen stories and Hindu stories, but... You know, there's not always, other than, there's a lot of great stories in the suttas. I guess those are the great Theravadan stories. They're not always quite so much fun. Anyway, in the Sufi story, there's a man who is imprisoned, and he wants very much to get out. 
the sense in the story is it's perhaps unjustly imprisoned, but he's imprisoned. And finally he hears that a friend of his is going to come and visit him. And he's quite certain that this friend is going to bring him the means to escape. You know, he'll smuggle the key in somehow. So the friend comes, and he has rolled up under his arm a prayer rug. It's a Sufi story, right? So you need a prayer rug if you're a good Muslim. And he offers the prayer rug to the prisoner. Apparently the guards didn't inspect it. And they visit for a bit, and then he leaves. And, you know, in the dark of the night, the prisoner unrolls the prayer rug. You know, where's the key? Where's the key? And there's it's just nothing but a prayer rug. It's a nice prayer rug, but it's just a prayer rug. So he's very disappointed, but he figures it's a good prayer rug. Why not use it? He didn't have a really good one in the prison, so he... Every day he would roll it out and he would do his prostrations toward Mecca and then he'd roll it back up again and then he'd roll it out again later in the day. And so he did his practice on that prayer rug. Because if you're doing bows on a prayer rug, you get a good look at the prayer rug, right? And after a while he began to realize that there was a pattern woven into the prayer rug. And then after a while he began to realize that the pattern made sense and what was woven into the prayer rug were the instructions for how to get out of the prison. So, really that's saying, in the practice are the instructions for finding freedom. You have to practice. You do. There's no way. I wish I could say to you, you know, it's great. Don't bother to practice. You'll still come to freedom. But I think that's not true. So you do have to practice. So one of the most important keys in this practice, I think, is the instruction about noticing the nature of your experience. Noticing that place, the feeling tone of your experience. This is traditionally in the teaching about the wheel of the creation of suffering. Lifetime after lifetime, hour after hour, minute after minute. This is the place where you can get off of the wheel. You notice that your experience is pleasant, yummy, you really like it, or it's unpleasant, awful, you hope it stops soon, you gotta, you'll do anything to make it stop, or it's neutral. That seems so simple. Every experience Every experience, every breath you take, every sensation that you have is pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. So what's the big deal? The big deal is that if you don't see that, if you just have the reaction to the experience, I hate it, it's got to stop, this person is terrible, whatever it is, what you do is you react and you continue the cycle of suffering. Right? So what you might be reacting to, for example, is it might be that the person in front of you looks just like your first husband or wife or partner, now your ex. But they look just like that person. 
it's probably pretty unpleasant. And we've all had that experience where we react to somebody because they remind us of someone from the past, right? And so there you are creating. And sometimes I've had the experience of realizing later, oh, this person isn't like that at all. You know, they're not, they're not my ex. They're who they are. And maybe they're utterly delightful people. But if you don't catch the place of unpleasantness, you can continue the cycle. And interestingly enough, if you don't catch the pleasantness, actually two things happen. One is you spin out in how to get more and greed and attachment, which tends then to continue a cycle of suffering. But what else? You lose the moment of pleasantness itself. You're so busy thinking about how to get more, chocolate, ice cream, sex, whatever, that you aren't there for what it is that you're having. It's very interesting, actually, to begin to see that. That when we're holding on, we actually lose out. So this is a very key place to stepping into this place of it's just what it is. On Monday afternoon, I had an extremely unpleasant afternoon, which I'm not going to tell you too much about, except that it involved a long airplane flight, waiting an hour and a quarter for luggage to arrive, um, driving home from Oakland through rush hour traffic, arriving at my road, at the end of which I knew was a house that had not had power for four days, and discovering that the road was closed because the power lines were on fire. So we went off to have a bite of dinner and regroup. And I looked at Russell and I said, you know, this is really unpleasant. And then we laughed because it was really unpleasant. But somehow just acknowledging its unpleasantness allowed us some freedom to have humor. And of course the humor took us into another space. And, you know, after a while we got home and it was okay. so it seems, it seems so simple, it's so mundane, and yet it's so key in our everyday life for finding that place of, of freedom. So one last thing. <clears throat> Some years ago I was sitting with a Tibetan Lama during a Dzogchen retreat, and he was a wonderful teacher. He taught with a Western teacher, and the Western teacher was... Um, was my actually was Lama Surya Das. So Lama Surya Das is kind of this big New York Bronx, you know, kind of guy, very extroverted, kind of booming voice. And Sonam Rinpoche was much quieter, not very flashy, seemed, you know, didn't take up so much space. But after a while, I began to realize as I heard his teachings that this was one of these people that you really ought to listen to because he's sort of a still waters run deep kind of guy. So I went and, and I began to kind of try to get some time to talk to him. And one day we were talking about this whole thing about awakening. And, and he said, you know, it's like you hear about a city. Maybe you hear about oh, I don't know, pick a city, Rio de Janeiro or something like that. And you go, oh, Rio, Brazil, yeah, hmm. And, and, but maybe it, when you first hear it, you don't even know Brazil. And so it's just this place, it's this city that you hear about. And then 
maybe you look it up and you discover it is in Brazil and you see where that is and maybe you read some things about it and so you know a little bit about Rio but you haven't been there yet right and then after a while maybe you think oh I could go and you figure out how to go and you go through jump through the hoops you get on the airplane or take the boat or whatever it is that you do to get there so it's some work to get there and then you're there and you're there maybe for a week or ten days you know you're visiting and you leave but he said at that point you still don't really know the city right and maybe you go back several times and each time you learn a little bit more sometimes it's easy to get back there sometimes it's hard to get back there and it's only really after you've lived there for a while that you can say you really know the city. You know, the markets and the subways and the delis and the grocery stores, all those things. And, and he said, that's what this process is like of awakening. So, you know, there's awakening, and then maybe you touch it, and then maybe you touch it again and again and again. So I really invite you to think about this, that, that this this gradual awakening process as Stephen Levine described it in his book is, is a process of just slowly, slowly, slowly waking up and that when we come back over and over again to our practice that's the way that we actually begin to see the key, we begin to see what it is that will help us to be awake more in our lives. So I think I'll stop there and see if you have any questions or comments or skepticism. (laughs) Be, be, Be brave, please. No? Yes. So it it seems that what you're saying about awakening there's probably more to it, but but it's it's, it's just it's being present. Uh, it's being really, really, really present. <laughs> So, you know, there's a way of being present where our stories about things get in the way because we, our, our minds are conditioned, right? We see things in a certain way. And I think as we wake up more, we begin to realize, you know, that even, even this, this sense of me Mary Grace Ornish is a concept but as I've often said if you had eyes for example that were um, electron microscopes and you could see all the particles moving around and maybe you looked around this room would you see solid bodies no you'd see all you know so the bodies is a concept it's a place where we um, it's like a connect the dots thing that we say. So 
awakening is is complete awakening would be to really understand the absolute nature of truth, whatever that is. I think it's very helpful. One of the pieces I, I forget. One thing that I forgot to mention. It's very very helpful when we begin to just understand that the picture is much bigger, much is beyond anything that it's possible for this four inches of gray matter to think. I like that myself, you know. And sometimes, sometimes, as many of you know this, I, I love the images from the Hubble Space Telescope. And I happened to see some of them the other day on a fairly good-sized screen TV. And they just knocked my socks off. It's like, you look at that, and you see these organic shapes and great spaces and then these things that look like billowing clouds and you realize that what you're looking at is gazillions of stars and galaxies what is going and they're colored I mean what's going on I don't know is that helpful at all (laughs) (laughs) chew on it this is fun it is fun Thank you. That's perfect. It is fun. It is really fun. And I think it's very helpful to kind of chew on these things just thinking we don't know. You know, don't know is a great mantra for this practice. Just don't know. Don't know who you are. Don't know what this is. Just don't know for a few moments. Play with it. It's fun. Yeah, thank you. You just finished the talk, but we'll see. Christy. I was really moved by the story about the man who came to the prisoner and gave the role that it just he didn't have this idea that he was given the key to freedom and, and that and maybe I just love the idea that maybe that we all just got to hear the story the end of the story and maybe we all had the keys. Uh-huh. And that's just a beautiful image. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, whether he knew that or didn't know, it's not in the story. Right. Maybe. And that happens sometimes, right? People hand you something in life that turns out to be a great opening. Yeah. Please, Mena. Um, this, again, this question, but it's often heard. How would I know when I even have a moment of Well, to be completely awake, they say, there's no greed, no hatred, and no delusion. So let's just say you have a moment where there's less greed, less hatred, and less delusion. That's a really good marker. If the heart is opening, there's an arising of compassion. That's often a good marker. If you're just suffering less, something might be changing. So you could play with those for starters. Okay, we should probably stop unless there's anybody else who's burning to say anything. I want to say a couple of things. One is um, I am regretfully making cameo appearances in Santa Cruz this week, which means that I'm actually only here just this week and I'm leaving again. And I'm leaving again so soon, mostly because my father's health is really failing. Mm-hmm. 
So I'm going to spend some time with him uh, on the East Coast as well as teaching a retreat, I hope, in Philadelphia, although we'll see about that. So I'm expecting to be gone for the next three weeks. It could be longer. It, probably, it won't be less. Um, and so you'll be in very good hands. Um, Marcy Reynolds, who teaches the Qigong class, is teaching this class next week as well. And she's a wonderful teacher. And I'm sure she'll be teaching something about mindfulness of the body because that's really her thing. And I completely recommend her to you. And if you'd like kind of a really full evening, you could come for the Qigong class and then stay for the sitting and you'll really get like a little mini retreat or something like that. So that's happening next week. And then um, I believe Carla Brennan is teaching the following week. And then Jill is going to teach on the last Thursday in July. So you're in good hands. Um, there's a number of things that are happening besides that. This Saturday, are you teaching it with Dan? Yes. So Bruce and Dan Landry are teaching a day for men. So this announcement is for the men from 9 until 4. four. Um, and the men's retreats have been really well received. Um, people are, the men are liking them. And um, I guess... The women are liking the results. I don't know. I'd have to find some of the spouses to see or partners. Um, so please come and give it a try, and um, you'll enjoy it, I think. And then um, we also have a beginner's class that's happening on Wednesday nights. It began last night, but I'm sure you'd be welcome to come next Wednesday. So if any of you are wanting to hear beginning instructions or you have a friend who's been saying, gee, I'd really like to learn how to meditate, they can come on Wednesday at 6.30. Jill and Bruce will be teaching it. So that's that. Um, and then a couple of things that are coming up a little farther in the future um, that I particularly want to mention um, <clears throat> On the third Sunday, there's a sitting now every Sunday at 9.30. And then on the third Sunday, um, Carla Brennan is continuing after that sit. So if you'd like a whole morning of practice, you're welcome to come. And then also on Saturday the 26th, um, we have two nuns from the Amravati community who are teaching here. These women are quite remarkable. And one of the really wonderful things is that they're looking around for a place to have a monastery in Northern California. And so partly what they're doing is visiting different communities just to let people know that they're looking. They're, they have remarkable lives and um, are often very good teachers. I, I know one of these nuns, Sister Ananda Bodhi, and I don't know the other one, but um, I think you'll really enjoy them. So we're asking people to bring food to share um, because they have their main meal of the day once before noon on um, any day. And so this way we bring food, we can offer food to them, and then after they have theirs, then everybody else gets to share it. So um, I really <coughs> hope that a number of you will come and be part of that day. I think... That's everything else. Stacks and stacks of flyers up here. Anything, please? 
heads up on February 9th. It does seem a long way away, but you might need to plan for this. There will be an all-night sit um, that Bruce and I will lead, and it'll start at 10 and end at 5. And it's really fun. That may not sound like fun, but it really <laughs> is fun. So, Saturday night. Um, I have started a Dharma Friends uh, women's group. Um, it's called the Women's Wisdom Circle um, for women of all ages, all generations. Um, it's a, a discussion group, not, not strictly a sitting group. Um, and it meets once a month at my home. And we're having our next meeting this coming Monday, um, January 14th, 7.30. And I have flyers in here. Great. Other announcements, please, Phyllis. Yes. Um, the second Monday of the month, there's a meeting here. I'm sorry to say it's the same night, but uh, of the Buddhist Peace Fellowship, and um, it's for people who practicing and also want to be engaged in the world. So, if you want to know more about it, I think you might be interested in doing that. You can give me a call and we can talk about it. Is, is there a link on our website? It just says it's just noting that okay. tonight, but it doesn't. Okay. It's easier to just kind of give person who's interested in some history of what we're doing. How would they find you? I can give you my phone number. Right. So connect with Phyllis before you leave. But anyone else? Bill, are you doing the Donna announcement tonight? No. <laughs> <laughs> You're the treasurer, so we'll let you do it. And for any of you who might be new, the word dana actually means generosity, and it's really how we support ourselves and our teachers and teachings um, in this tradition. So. And one thing I forgot to mention is that there are a stack of books over there on the end of the back table. They're called Meditations 2. They're by our good friend Tanisara Bhikkhu. These are Donna books, so this is a generosity book. And what that means is have one. They're a present, if you like to think of it that way. Um, they're short Dharma talks that he has given, and um, you're welcome to them. Ah, we've got one more announcement back here. So there's a basket in the hallway for the River Street Shelter, and um, my semester schedule is at such starting now that I won't be sitting Thursday night, so I would love it if someone would announce or remind the community that that basket's there. So if you are interested in being the announcer for a semester, then um, see me afterwards. That's Marshall. So the basket is obviously looking for warm clothing, sleeping bags, shoes, socks, that sort of thing. 
No, like Tupperware or lamps or random furniture. <laughs> <laughs> so, Marsha, they don't have to be here every week. No, because I'll, I'll just come and pick, pick it up. But, like, you know, if it's announced every other week, otherwise it's right. just a backup. I just wouldn't want anyone to feel like they had to commit to being here. No, yeah. So, so if you're mostly here and mostly. would announce it, that would be great. You've got a taker right here. Michelle oh, said great. she would. So why don't you check check in? Any other announcements before we do just a little closing meta? Okay. So we'll end with just a little bit of metta practice. Sit quite comfortably, just as you are, is really fine. <clears throat> one, of, one of the ways of describing metta that I particularly like is calling it grandmotherly love. So this is a practice of extending that kind of warm, accepting, friendliness, kindness to ourselves and to all other beings. So just take a moment, breathe a few breaths, feel your body, perhaps take a moment to reflect on whatever your personal situation is, and then in some simple way extend kindness and goodwill into your own being. It might be with a phrase. It might be with an image. It might just be the breath, breathing, friendliness, and goodwill through your body. yourself be aware of all the people gathered here tonight people to your right and left and in front of you and behind you and extend your goodwill around the room again a phrase or an image or just breathing out friendliness and kindness to each person here to all of your fellow sea turtles gathered here in this tide pool. And then you can let your awareness begin to go out into the world, perhaps first to the people whom you know and love. And if there's anyone whose name you'd like to mention to place in this circle, please do so. Govind, Amelia, Julian. Extending our goodwill, our friendliness to each of these people, wishing that they may be peaceful and have ease of being. And then we extend our friendliness, our kindness on out to all people, to all of the creatures of the earth and the air and the water, to beings in every direction, in every realm, 
known and unknown to us. And last of all, we gather up all of the merit of our practice together this evening, all of the goodness, all of the blessing. And we give this merit away, we offer it to all of these beings, that all beings may be happy, that all beings may be peaceful, and that all beings everywhere may be free. Thank you.